Good morning. I had my uh, son pray for me this morning on the way to church, and uh, his first part of his prayer was, Oh, Lord, please help my father. He hasn't preached in a long time. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Uh, so I'm, I'm the preacher this morning, my apologies. And, uh, but the ending of his prayer I really appreciated because he, he asked for the Lord to give hope to Jerusalem Church through the preaching of the word. And so that's my, my prayer. So let's open the word of prayer and then we're going to look uh, at Matthew chapter 2. Gracious Father, we thank you for the supreme gift of your son. We celebrate this during the Christmas season. We thank you that he is the apex of your plan redemptively. We thank you that he is the God-man, your eternally beloved son, who took on human flesh, who was fully human, fully God in one person. This is the mystery of the Incarnation. We thank you. We want to see this today. We want to glory in your Son. And we do this through the power of your Word as your Spirit works in concert with the Word. So as your sons and daughters, we ask you confidently to fulfill this request that we would see the supremacy of your Son through the hearing of your Word, that you would grant us through your Word faith to love and treasure Christ, to worship Him, to present gifts to Him continually, the fruit of our lips and our bodies as living sacrifices. We also ask that for the churches in this community in Mannheim, in Lancaster, around the world, that are to today proclaiming you as king, that your word would work deeply in your church to conform it more to the image of your son. So we thank you for the ways that you're working around the world today as your word is proclaimed. Thank you for hearing us, Father, in the name of our precious Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to start with uh, having you picture a scene that might well be the case uh, soon in the near future, but imagine that you are on the Red Rose Transit bus on your way to Lancaster City. You're sitting there and noticing people who come to uh, get on the bus with you, and the first person who gets on the bus is a well-respected church member in the town of Mannheim. You say a polite hello. Next person who gets on the bus from a New Age bookstore stopping is a New Age spiritualist. You prefer not to say hello. And the last person who comes and boards on the bus is a Syrian refugee. So my question this morning, and we'll let Matthew to answer that, is what do these three individuals have in common? a Mannheim church member, a New Age spiritualist, and a Syrian refugee. What do they have in common? Well, what is in common is the gospel. We're going to see how Matthew unfolds that for us here this morning. I'd like you to open your Bibles. Uh, Dave graciously read, and I'd like to go back to that passage. It's in your pew Bible. If you have your pew Bible in front of you, it's page 681 and page 682. We're going to do a brief walkthrough of the text. It'll be very brief because it is a long, long passage. I'm going to pull out just bits and pieces along the way and stress application. But so you know how we're going to proceed, we're going to uh, divide this text into uh, four scenes. Um, The first scene is going to be uh, chapter 2, 1 through 8. So in your mind as you're looking at the Bible, that'll be our first scene. 
The second scene is going to be verses 9 through 12. The third scene is 13 through 18. And the fourth scene is 19 through 23. Now you ask, why do you divide it that way? Uh, Well, there's two reasons why I divide the scenes up in this way. Uh, Number one is you have that word, idu, in the Greek, which means to behold. And for the gospel writers, that means watch out, something important is coming. Here comes a new character on the scene. He's going to be significant. So we're dividing the text up according to those idus. And you can see those at each section, verse 2, verse 9, 13, and 19 as well. One other reason we're going to divide the scenes this way is because they take place in different locations. So the first scene takes place in Jerusalem, the second scene takes place in Bethlehem, third scene in Egypt, and the fourth scene in Nazareth. So it's a natural place to divide the text, both with Idu, uh, the Greek word behold, and then they're in different geographical regions. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the characters in this text. Um, in the first scene, I'm going to briefly give you some historical background into these individuals. Three characters we have in this scene are Jesus, and of course God working on behalf of Jesus. Second character we have is Herod, and the third we have are the wise men. The first scene, they all converge together. And what you have to see in Matthew's gospel is the spotlight is always on Jesus. So all the characters are responding to Jesus in unique and individual ways. So in the first scene, we have a convergence of characters. The next scene in Bethlehem, we split off. We're going to look at the wise men. Then we have the magi in the next scene. And then finally, we have just Jesus alone. And so Matthew is starting us with Jesus, ending us with Jesus. And all the characters are orbiting around Jesus as the Son of God. So let's start with a little bit of background by way of who these characters are. Let's start with, of course, Jesus. So if you have your Bible open, look in Matthew chapter 1. We know that Jesus is called Emmanuel, which is God with us. We see his divinity stressed uh, sharply in Matthew chapter 1. But we also see something about God. God is working on behalf of Jesus And if you look at the first part of Matthew chapter 1, you see a massive genealogy. And the first thing we see about God in Matthew is that God is orchestrating events according to his sovereign pleasure. He is the Lord of history. So he orchestrates history with these characters, and he orchestrates genealogy for the glory of his name. God is accomplishing things through history, through genealogy. Now what's interesting in the second chapter is God is also orchestrating events, not through history and genealogy, but he's orchestrating a star through a natural phenomenon. So God's sovereignty and the glory of his name is there and very evident in the scene. And even though he's not named, God is at work continually in chapter 2, sending a star, sending dreams, sending people. Of course, the child Jesus, we've said, is Emmanuel, God with us. God is working on behalf of Jesus, and we're going to see God protecting his, the precious child Jesus in chapter 2. One thing I want to make sure we catch very clearly is the fact that while God is in control of history, and he is also in control of the star, and those magi would not have come unless God's sovereign superintendence of history to orchestrate the star that they would seek him. So chapter 2 screams grace. It screams God's initiative. He's the primary character. So if the Magi seek God's Christ, it's only because of God's grace and his sovereign initiative, just as he was sovereign over the genealogy in chapter 1. He's the first character, always on the scene. We're so grateful for God's sovereign grace. 
The next individual we come across in chapter 2, verse 1, is Herod. You've probably heard of Herod the Great. He ruled from 37 to 4 B.C. He was an Idumean by birth, uh, which means he's from Edom. Traditionally, they're enemies of Israel. And the interesting thing about Herod is um, he had to straddle two worlds. And this was often the challenge for him, caused him to not be liked on both sides. He had to straddle the world of the Greco-Roman world with one foot, placate the Roman Empire, the Greco-Romans. You see this in his architecture. You see this in erecting temples that consternated the, the subjects of the Jews. And then you see him in the Jewish world trying to placate his subjects, the Jewish nation. So he was a man caught between two worlds. Um, He had a difficulty at home, to say the least. One reason was because he had, yes, he had ten wives. Ten wives who had offspring, and you can imagine what those wives wanted for their own precious, beloved children. They wanted them to be the rightful heirs on the throne. So you had a number of political uh, intriguing stories, assassinations, and plots. Uh, Herod had six wills actually written up during his lifetime. The last will he had was written up five days before his death, when he realized one of the sons he favored was actually plotting against him. So he changed quickly again his sixth will. He had his favorite wife strangled to death. He had his younger brother-in-law, when he was growing in popularity, drowned in a very shallow pool. He had two sons... Uh, unjustly accused of plotting against him, strangled to death. And five days before he died, he killed another son. This led Emperor Augustus, the Roman emperor, to say it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Uh, I'd like to read you a comment from Josephus. He gives a fascinating snapshot into Herod the Great. In his book, now Josephus was a first century Jewish historian, in his book, The Antiquities, he says this, listen closely to how he describes Herod. He kept his people obedient as well by the fear they stood of in him, for he was unstoppable in the affliction of his punishments. But then this magnificent temper of his obliged him to transgress the customs of his nation and to set aside many of their laws, and by building cities after an extravagant manner and erecting temples. And that's a no-no in Judaism. Not in Judea, indeed, for they would not have been born. It's being forbidden for us to pay any honor to images or representations of animals after the manner of the Greeks. But still he did this in the country out of our bounds and in the cities thereof. He goes on. He greatly guarded himself from discontents, people in his empire who were not happy. He took away the opportunities they might have to disturb him and prescribed for them to always be at work. He didn't permit the citizens either to meet together, to walk, or meet together, but watched everything they did. And when any were caught, they were severely punished. And many there were who were brought to the Hyrcania Citadel, both openly and secretly, and there they were put to death. There were spies set everywhere, both in the city and on the roads. So this paranoia of Herod comes out significantly. And then he talks about the end of his life. About the 70th year of his age, he grew fierce and indulged the bitterest rage upon all occasions. The cause was this, that he thought himself despised and that the nation was pleased with his misfortunes. 
He died the fifth day after he caused Aniper, his son, to have been slain, having reigned since he he caused Antagonist to be slain 34 years, and since he had been declared king by the Romans 37 years. And then he closes with this line describing Herod. He was a man of great barbarity to all men equally and a slave to his passion. Thus, Herod the Great. Converging in the first scene as well, we have the Magi. And I'd ask you to set aside some of our preconceived notions of the Magi and to consider what Matthew's audience would have heard when they were thinking about the Magi. Magi comes from the Greek word which means magus, which is what we would traditionally translate as astrologers or magicians. Uh, Originally, the term was applied to those who were from the priestly caste of the Medes and the Persians. They had skill in interpreting dreams. Later, the term was used of people in general who had secret forms of knowledge uh, through their ability with astrology. They were also considered sages. And then later on, the term was used for magicians and for sorcerers, imposters, and seducers. So by the time you get to the first century, there's a wide variety of uses for magi. Wide variety. The important thing, though, is that Matthew's audience, if they, and we assume they did, had knowledge of the Old Testament, if you know Daniel chapter 2, those words are used, the magus, in their relationship with Daniel. And when they're used in the Old Testament, they are entirely negative. They're seen as pure and simple idolaters, pagans, foolish, incompetent. So if Matthew's audience has Daniel 2 ringing in their ears, they are thinking these are heathen outsiders of the worst sorts. Coming into the New Testament, you also have magos used as well, and it is, besides this passage, used in negative ways. You have Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 13. In the Greco-Roman world, the interesting thing is the Greco-Romans actually appreciated astrologers, people who had insights into the stars in the Greco-Roman world. So Suetonius and Tacitus, first century historians, would tell us that if an astrologer came and talked about the birth of a ruler, people would take notice. Or if an astrologer told about the demise of a ruler, people would take notice. But the Jewish people, by and large, looked at the Magi as outsiders who were inept, who did not have the knowledge of God revealed in Scripture. And so they were presented in a negative light. Official Israel and its theology would see the Magi as idolatrous, foolish outsiders. The worst of the worst of the heathen. Involved in things that the Old Testament prescribed Israel to never involve themselves with. God had delivered his people from the tyranny of the stars by his word. And so we look at this picture, beautiful portrait, And we sometimes cast the Magi in the light of noble, wise, beautiful. And to a first century Jew, they would be anything but. Outsiders, foolish, heathen. And so we have the convergence of outsiders and a king, a paranoid king, who is dead set on securing his throne at all costs. And surrounding those two individuals, we have the Christ child. Now, in scene two, if you're looking there, 
Matthew chapter 2, 9 through 12. Let me read this section for us. This is now we're going to be looking at the Magi. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the place to rest where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Augustine says this about the Magi. Jesus then was manifested neither to the learned or to the righteous. For ignorance belongs to the shepherds of Luke's gospel and impiety or ungodliness to the idolatrous Magi of Matthew. And as we look at this scene, I want you to listen to what Craig Keener says in his socio-rhetorical commentary. What does this scene tell us? Craig Keener says, This scene reminds Matthew's readers not to prejudge the appropriate recipients of the gospel. This passage reminds us that we must preach the gospel to all people because we cannot always predict who will hear the message and respond. Those we least expect to honor Jesus may actually worship him. And those we least expect to oppose him, perhaps Herod, and especially the religious elite in Jerusalem, are the very ones who may seek his death. God's grace is written toward the Magi, and they respond with rejoicing and delight. Herod responds with rejection and death. So I want to stop here for a moment and look at a few points of application. Here's my question. If we see God's grace reaching far and wide, even to the heathen magi, do we appreciate the grace of God that's reached into our life? Do we prejudge others before we share the gospel with them? Do we say, no, not you. No, God, you can't. We have in our minds this ideal person who will respond to Christ. Is that the way God works? See, Matthew's gospel has a number of themes, and one of those is the first are last, and the last are first. And things are not always what they appear to be. God revels in irony and paradox. I was reminded of that this week when um, I was sitting in a library with an individual who was talking with me. And I have to confess, I was not looking in their eyes. I was looking at their arms because I had never seen so many tattoos in my entire life. And I tried hard to look, but I was amazed at the artistry of the tattoos. Now, these weren't just tattoos, though. These were tattoos of witchcraft and the worship of Satan, and they were blatant throughout his arms. And I couldn't help but stare. But here's the beautiful thing. The fella had recently come to Christ. And I have seen very few people who long for the word of God like he's longing for the word of God. But if I was to see him on the street corner, would I prejudge him and say, no, the gospel can't break through his heart? Now, I used to work at a youth center uh, called the Factory Youth Center. And uh, there was an individual there, I won't say his name, but boy, he was a smart, smart boy. Very smart. He was always talking about things like astrophysics to me, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And he was very critical of Christianity and had some serious questions that I never seemed to be able to answer correctly. And I thought to myself, nothing going to happen there. And wouldn't you know it? The Lord broke his heart. 
And then we say, okay, the Lord, you break through hearts. We shouldn't prejudge when we preach the gospel. How about us? Do we think we're the most respectable society? Do we think we earned our salvation, that God just saw how great we were and so gave it to us? And so Matthew 2 screams out the beauty of the gospel. It's grace from start to finish. And the second point, though, about the, the, the wise men I'd like to consider here is not only when we proclaim the gospel to let God's grace reach far and wide, but what is our response to the Christ child? And in the gospels, whether you like it or not, they don't paint things in many hues. It's, just, it's, a, it's colors of contrast. There's two responses to the Christ child. He's the apex of history. You either respond and face judgment, as Herod, respond negatively, or you respond favorably and find life. The wise men respond favorably with rejoicing and worship the Christ child. Anything less is unacceptable in God's redemptive plan. Now, we could be hard on Herod, but we should equally be hard on the religious elite in the first scene. They know the scriptures, and what do they do? Ambivalence, lack of response, and the only response God desires from us is to respond rightly to the Christ child, to worship him deeply, to see his supremacy, and follow, and to give gifts. The gift, the greatest gift, is to proclaim his supremacy to the world in the gospel. Now, scene three, we have Herod. So if you're looking there at the text, let's look at Herod. Verse 13, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. And you see God again sovereignly orchestrating events for the glory of his name. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Jerusalem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children and refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, I would prefer at this point to read to you a quote from a fellow by the name of Frederick Bruner. And it's a cutting comment, but I trust as you understand the gospel, you'll say, I see what he's saying. And whereas we would want to normally associate with the religious elites and the respectable, we're forced to associate with the Magi heathen and see God's grace. But what do we do with Herod? Is there anything we can learn about him? Bruner says this, Herod is not merely the gospel villain. He's every man. Herod teaches that a reaction of raw human nature to the kingship of Jesus is rebellion. If Jesus is Lord, then we are not. Thus, Herod, though an extreme case, is not an isolated one. Bruner says this, Herod is what I am deep down inside. It is only when we learn to see ourselves in the problematic people of the gospel that the gospel comes to life. From the four questionable couples in the genealogy, through the Magi, now to Herod, on to the Pharisees, to the Romans, and even the failing disciples at the Passion. 
Only until we identify with them will we be reading the gospel existentially. Herod reveals to us what sinful human nature does when confronted with God's revelation. They come, as Herod does, in rebellion, and they come under God's judgment. There are two themes in the New Testament, and they combine to make one gospel. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and humanity's deep need for that grace. Sin and grace, need and salvation. The human problem and the divine solution. When either of these is insufficiently emphasized, respect for the others diminishes. We cannot know God's blessings unless we recognize our evil. We need to appreciate the Magi and Herod in us if we are to appreciate Christ for us. So Herod teaches us the opposite response, not of rejoicing and worship, but of rejection, and as Matthew presents twice, Herod's death and judgment. Those who had access to special revelation, the religious elite in the first scene, responded in complacency. And at worst, they responded with rejection and seeking Christ's death. This is the difficulty of the application of this section, but I think if we're going to be sensitive to Matthew, especially Matthew chapter 23, we have to carefully consider how we respond to Jesus. Is our response ambivalent? Most of us would say, oh, I'm not openly seeking to destroy the kingship of Christ, but how do we respond to God's word? In Matthew 23, that is the fiercest language Jesus uses in all of Matthew's gospel. They call it the seven words. On and on he goes to judge, to implicate the religious leaders. And these are the very ones who had access to God's ways redemptively. And they didn't respond. They remained ambivalent, and they, resp- they responded in self-worship. Uh, that is something we need to carefully hear today as well. When Jesus is speaking the parables, he starts out in Mark's gospel, the first parable, he says it repeatedly, listen, listen, listen. Ambivalence or rejection on that spectrum is judged. A famous Puritan preacher, his name was Jonathan Edwards, he was in the 18th century, he preached to a group of Native Americans in Stockbridge. And what's interesting is when you read his sermons, you would think he's going to be hard on the Native Americans, because the Puritans assumed that they were servants of the devil, serving his will. But actually, his harshest language he reserved for the colonists, those who had come over and were not representing Christ to them. Those who had the word of God but didn't live it out. And Jonathan Edwards was taking his cues from the biblical text that says, to whom much is given, much is required. That's a fearful thing for us today because we sit under the light of God's special revelation and the supremacy of Christ. How do we respond? Are we ambivalent? Do we still continue in self-worship and then so face our judgment and death? This same week, I was only an hour after I was in the library, I was at a coffee shop with an individual. And they had been raised in Christianity under the light of the supremacy of Christ. By God's grace... They were continuing deeply to go into Scripture and to love Christ. The look in their eyes was very exciting. But we know of people who have heard the message of Christ's supremacy and continually reject or remain ambivalent to that message. 
and fierce judgment awaits. Is that your heart? Is that mine? Is that those whom we know? Do we respond deeply to the supremacy of Christ and find joy and delight in worship? So Herod serves as a warning for us as well. But we would be mistaken if we only looked at the Magi or we only looked at Herod. Because this story is not centrally concerned with those. It's centrally concerned with, of course, the final scene, which is Jesus the Christ. So let's look at the final scene. And I want to talk about two different issues that are very interesting regarding the Christ child. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Then he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. When he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And I should just tell you briefly, Archelaus was a horrible ruler. Rome actually had to dispose him. He was so bad. They sent him in exile. So he was naturally fearful. Uh, Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. First thing to note about this is the interesting way it ends, which is he'll be called a Nazarene. This is fun for me because when I look in commentaries, scholars scratch their heads and say, what is this? (laughs) So they have three options. Number one option, is this a play on sound? They're going to go back to Judges. The book of Judges, chapter 13 and and 16, talks about a boy who is a Nazir which means a play on sound is someone who's consecrated or holy. Are they saying Jesus is holy? Most of the commentators, the scholars that I look at say, it's probably too far of a stretch for Matthew's audience to grab that. So they then gravitate toward the second instance, which is more of a word play with the word netzer, nazareos, since it means branch or light. And they'll go to Isaiah chapter 11 that Jesus would come from the stock, the branch of Jesse from David. And scholars say that might be more of the situation, but by and large, they're going to opt for the third choice. And this one's interesting. It's because Nazareth, by its very nature and existence, was a nobody town. Smallville, USA. Backwoods, Galilee. Matter of fact, when Josephus lists his towns, the towns in Galilee, he doesn't even bother to list Nazareth. It was that small. It was that insignificant. And if you follow Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, you see this theme, that God's ways is revealed in the glory of the cross and lowliness and insignificance. The Messiah would be lowly. And this is a theme that Matthew stresses repeatedly in chapter 5, 11, and 21. The baby Jesus, the lowly one, is behold God's glorious plan. The irony and the paradox of history. And so he'll be called a Nazarene. Second thing to note about this, which you might be catching as you're working through Matthew chapter 2, is the geographical sweep of Jesus. Matthew calls him the child Jesus, emphasizing his humanity. He also notes that the Magi worship him, emphasizing his divinity. So scholars say to catch that, catch that about Jesus. But they also say, do you see Jesus' journey, the passive Christ child? Where does he start? He starts in Israel. Where does he go? He goes to Egypt. Where does he come back? He comes back to Israel. Now, if you know your Old Testament story, 
That is the story of who? The patriarchs in ancient Israel. Abraham, Joseph, on and on, in the land of Israel, down as a refugee in exile and bondage to Egypt, coming back up to Israel. And if you look at verse 18, you also have Rachel, the matriarch, weeping for her children in exile. And scholars are overwhelmed by these references about the supremacy of Christ and that he's replicating Israel's history. And then they say this, here we have Jesus, the God-man, who is representing Israel. Israel's history, we know their story, they failed. Now Jesus, as representative of humanity, is doing what Israel failed to do. Perfect. Israel, Egypt, back to Israel, the representative human taking on the sins of the world and dying for fallen humanity. This is the true Israelite. Do you see him and do you behold him? Bruner says this, Look how good God was to invite the Magi. Grace. See how ominously Herod responded. Fear. And note especially what the child went through for us. And that is the good news of the gospel. So there you are on the bus. Do you worship the Christ child? Do you remain ambivalent to him? And how do you respond to a church member, a New Age spiritualist, and a Syrian refugee? What is your vision of God in history? And how do you respond well? Praise God for his grace in initiating by sending the child Jesus for us all. We are Magi, we are Herod, but the good news of the gospel is in our fallenness, we have Jesus, the true Israelite, representing all of us in his lowliness on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. Matthew 2, the gospel in microcosm. And so we rejoice in the great grace and wisdom of God. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your supremacy. Thank you that your delight is in your son. That he is the child, frail, humanity, the divine as the magi worship. We want to see him. We want to respond properly to him today by your word. Help us to fall down and worship. Help us not to respond ambivalently or in rejection by your grace. May your word and your spirit work in concert with our hearts deeply that we could respond as we should and then proclaim the message far and wide without prejudging individuals because we ourselves are deeply fallen. But now by your grace, we are your sons and daughters. Thank you for this, Father. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.